everyone. I'm Alicia Swami. I'm here with my co-host, Eric Johnson. We are Exposing Mold. Today, we have Paula Baker-Laporte. She is an architect that has dedicated her practice to the precepts of environmentally sound and health-enhancing architecture. Her firm continues to lead in the fields of healthy and natural design and design and consultation for the chemically sensitive. She was selected as one of the nation's top 10 green architects in Natural Homes July and August 2005 edition. She is the primary author of Prescriptions for a Healthy House and is co-author with husband Robert Laporte of EcoNest, Creating Sustainable Sanctuaries of Clay, Straw, and Timber. Together, Paula and her husband had developed the EcoNest home concept. EcoNest's mission is to design, construct, and transform built environments to support human health. They use time-tested and forward-thinking building methods, natural materials, and a science-based approach to reduce hazards and achieve optimal environments that support holistic wellness and vitality. EcoNest projects have been built throughout North America and are featured in several books. What a loaded bio you have, Paula. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're so welcome. I'm happy to be here. Now, tell us more about your experience. How did you get into architecture? I did that in a whim, kind of as a whim, when I was uh, pretty young still and really didn't know what architecture was. And then once I began to study it, I I loved it. I was fortunate to have great mentors who um, were with me through my education, and I came out of that education raring to design buildings. So, and that was in Toronto, where I came from. That's amazing. So what made you gear your efforts towards helping the chemically sensitive and, and dealing with more natural materials? Hey everybody, Exposing Mold is excited to introduce to you the participants of our donor shout out fundraiser for the month of May. We'd like to say a special thanks to the following people and organizations for their generous contribution. Thank you, David Silver from First Stop Environmental. That's firststopenvironmental.com. Thank you, David Adams. Elaine Ard. She wrote us a message and said, Eric Keeley and Alicia have helped more than any doctor has. Thank you to Angela Morgan. Thank you to our anonymous donor. Thank you, Paige McBride. Shay Shartner. Sarah Richards. She writes, thank you for all you do. And last but not least, David Tessima. He writes, I appreciate the work that all of you do to spread awareness. And as always, huge respect and gratitude for Eric Johnson. Thanks again, everyone, for your participation in our fundraiser. Your support is making a difference in this community. Now let's get back to the podcast. So when I was just a few years after I graduated, I moved to New Mexico and uh, began to have some, I was in good shape and I began to have some serious ailments. Uh, I was getting pneumonia frequently and you know, getting foggy headed whenever I went to a shopping mall, et cetera, et cetera. The typical, um, you know, going from doctor to doctor and no one knew what was wrong with me. And um, eventually my, the co-author who was with us for the first couple of uh, editions of Prescriptions for a Healthy House, Dr. Erica Elliott, was a client of mine. And um, one day she phoned me up and said, Paula, I know what's wrong with you because it's wrong with me too. And how she found out about it was 
she had a, a patient come and see her at her at the clinic where she was working. And he said, Dr. Elliot, you don't look well. And she said, I don't feel well. He said, well, tell me your symptoms. It turned out, you know, she was classic um, chemically, chemically sensitive individual, but she had no training in it. And I had no training. So this was all new to us. She found out, for example, that the clinic she was working at was regularly pesticided once a month. And once a month, she'd go home with the flu, not knowing what was, you know, dizzy and headaches and um, would feel better at home and come back to work the next Monday and, and be okay again until eventually she wore down and wore down. So she was introduced to chemical sensitivities by a patient. And we were in the middle of designing her home and she just said, Paula, we got to do this one differently. And I kind of went into it kicking and screaming until I realized um, that this is what had been plaguing my health. I had moved to somewhere in New Mexico that was brand new and full of formaldehyde. And it went right to my lungs um, and have worked to heal from that ever since I can I consider myself well now, but I would not do well in a formaldehyde filled house. No one would. So I realized that never once in my rigorous architectural education or uh, um, all of the years for licensing was the word health and architecture mentioned together on the same page, unless it was hospitals or something. And um, I thought I was going to have to give up this career that I loved because I, once I got cause and effect, I realized every time I went on one of my job sites, I felt sick from the finishes, from the formaldehyde, for all the things that everyone was using back then. And then one day it dawned on me, well, if this is what's happened to me, what about these people we're doing these houses for? There's got to be a better way. So this is a long story. Should I continue? Um, yeah, this is great. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I got out, you know, those days there was no internet. This was um, in the very early 1991 or so when I, or 92, when I finally heard that chemicals could affect us. And I got out the two books that were in existence on how to build better. One of them was this little tiny book by Clint Good, and it recommended going back to our old-fashioned ways of building. But we used to build without insulation, and people used to be pretty darn used to being uncomfortable indoors. You know, you wore hats at night. And the other one was by a pioneer in this field called John Bauer. And essentially, it was um, um, seal it tight, ventilate it right school of thought that don't pay too much attention to the materials, but then put a lot of, um, you know, seal it with plastic on the inside so you're not exposed to the materials, and then pump ventilation into it. So I was someone who loved organic food, my food, only bought, or, you know, the natural food. I don't even think they had much organic back then, but I was totally on to the food scene. And um, I knew how different that was from um, the standard American diet and what the difference impact was on my health. But it wasn't until I discovered something called biology or building biology, which was from Germany, that I realized there was also a way to do housing that was um, returned to nature. So building biology came up in Germany in the 1960s after they'd done en masse rebuilding using the brand new chemicals that they turned to peacetime activity from wartime factories. 
And by the early 60s, it was really clearly evident that a certain segment of the population was getting very sick from these chemicals. So um, a group of people, this was very interdisciplinary. The first founders, it was it was doctors, it was architects, it was a wood scientist, was one of the foremost founders, um, Anton Schneider, and um, there was journalists, and they and there was concerned citizens, people with children, and they got together to explore what makes an environment healthy. And they came up with 25 principles. But behind all that, all those principles was the principle that nature is the gold standard for a healthy human environment. So um, not all of nature is healthy, but generally, even our polluted city streets are uh, less polluted than uh, a conventionally built and um say, a 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s house in North America. So studying these principles, um, eventually, you know, I was surrounded by natural materials because I lived in New Mexico, but I had not valued them. So I was doing a lot of uh, very large buildings that looked like they were adobe, but they were really wood frame without distinguishing the difference between them. And once I learned this, I began to notice. and. Then once I, I, I um, hooked up with Robert Laporte because I read an article about him and he was applying these principles to the things he was building, his timber frames. And then he developed a light straw clay system for building, which he got from Europe. So we built our own first house together and I almost blindly followed those principles without fully understanding them. And the results were so striking. So unlike anything I'd been in in North America, that and that was um, 1999, and ever since then, that's been explaining why that works. We've built several houses for ourselves now, for other people, um, has been my main teaching goal for the Building Biology Institute. And we can go into that more, but I'd like to answer the next question first that you haven't asked yet, but I hope you, you you hoped you would ask, do we do light straw clay buildings for people who are um, very, very ill and very mold sensitive? No, we've looked for other solutions that work on the same principles, because if you're very, very mold sensitive, or if you're very, very um, sensitive, you may be sensitive to wood terpenes. You may be sensitive to natural molds. Many people are not, but um, of the people we work with in our consulting world, especially who are highly sensitive, um, they need something more neutral. Uh, my least preference of how to build is conventional building, the way we do it in this country um, for many reasons. If that's our only choice, which it is in most of the country or good parts of the country, uh, then we know how to do it better. Um, and we've all, as a culture, learned how to do it better. We will know in 50 years if the plastics that we now get from Europe that are supposed to be breathable, allow for vapor diffusion, work after 50 years. We do know that uh, mud works because we have buildings throughout Europe that use substantial amounts of clay soils that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. So... So that was a mouthful. Where, where do we go from here? 
It's interesting. When I got uh, so chemically sensitive and reactive to mold, I uh, went out to take refuge at an old Civil War fort in Nevada, Fort Churchill. And these are all old adobe construction falling apart, just rotting in place. And I'm going, here they are exposed to the elements. They should be moldy as heck. But I feel terrific out here. Yeah. I yeah. wanted an adobe house for sure. Yeah, there's they're still possible, but um they're they're trickier now because what do they do? They spray them with foam to get a high R value. Um and some of that is codified now. In New Mexico, if you make the walls really thick, they let you not have the insulation. But um it, that's one of the tools in our toolkit for sure. And um, you know, you are very you're not alone, Eric, as you probably know. I have done whenever I meet someone who's gotten well, and I've met many, many people who are not well, and they're well and radiant. I say, what was your, how did you do it? What was your cure? And it usually somewhere in there involves going back to nature and living outdoors. Just, um, and just brings home that nature is the gold standard for what a human being, we mammals need. Yeah, I believe it does more than just um, gives you a respite. It actually reprograms the immune system so that you get a chance to get on top of the power curve and it programs you for a heightened sensitivity to whatever it is that bothers you. So any attempt to return to civilization, you walk into a place and go, oh, no, not not this place. And that's the real benefit of uh, the desert nature camping experience is everybody that does it seems to come back with the uncanny ability to know exactly what's making them sick. Yes. Well, uh, boy, I've seen it across the board. Some people will react instantly to something, and then there's other people who they don't have instant reactions, and that's really difficult. If someone can go into a built environment um, that's been built in a special way and sit in it or sleep in it, oh, that's such a head start. You know, I've had clients who've uh, been so generous, even though if someone walked in with perfume, they'd be, you know, devastated in allowing people to come who are sensitive and try out their house, you know, sit in it or see how they feel or take a tour. And um, I've learned two big things from that. One is that um, no two people are the same. And the other is that... Um, if you can find an environment, and it's so hard to find in this country, where you feel okay and we can duplicate it, we can walk into the process with such a comfort level and such a, a level of, um, of optimism compared to just shooting in the dark. Well, I had that delayed reaction myself. And of course, if you've got a delayed reaction, you don't know what is slamming you. It makes it impossible. It's, mm -hmm. it's really, you know, what do you do? And I, stumble over quite by accident that the more time I spent in the desert, the less that lag time got until my reactions became instantaneous. That's great information. So one of the things I wanted to know is, okay, am I the only one? Or if other people do the same thing, will their reaction time increase so they'll be able to do the same thing? And so far, that has been the case. Well, um, that really explains because sometimes you know, I know people who are living outdoors and sometimes they feel like their sensitivities are getting greater, but it may be just that they're unmasking, as you say, and able to discern more what's making them sick. 
So that's yeah. really valuable. It's so valuable when people share. Some some people went out to the desert and their sensitivity increased so dramatically that they thought they were getting worse because they were reacting to all their contaminated objects. They actually gave up and went home. It's like, no, that's a sign of healing. That's your immune system detoxing and reprogramming itself. Yeah. The body is an incredible miracle if we just put it in, you know, if we let it heal, if we can find a place to heal. It so, can heal. Uh, after stumbling over this reprogramming and the ability to go through the desert experience, I call it the desert when actually it works in the wilderness too, out in the woods. But the, the desert is more uh, striking because you're not exposed to terpenes or anything that you could blame your reactions on. There's nothing but sand out there. So it's like, what's out here? And re researchers, doctors, they're not interested in studying this. Don't know why. It's a fascinating phenomenon. Even, even if you don't want to do it, still, the fact that we could reprogram our immune system to achieve this instant response so we, we become walking mold or chemical dogs and can rely on our own senses, it's, it's a fa fascinating topic. It is a fascinating topic. I don't know of anyone who would fund it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. We need a rich person who's really desperate. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorships. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. I'm curious, Paula, what are some of the issues you see with current building practices and, and why, why aren't we building homes that are more supportive of our health, but also the health of the environment? You know, I've recently, I recently had to take a, a good look at that because I was invited to speak about building biology to a bunch, you know, to a conference in Germany. So this was like going home to the mother ship. And how would I explain what goes on in North America? Because you, you see Europeans all the time. They say it's a nice country, but why do you build out of cardboard? And we, we literally do build out of paper products. Um, I think part of the reason is um, if you look at statistics, uh, the average North American moves at least 11 times, whereas the average European is four times. When the European, and they just have that legacy of building to last and for quality, and they have the examples around them. And, um, you know, the, I, they said, well, why do, why do North, I was asked, why do North Americans move so much? And, and I said, well, have you ever heard the saying, go West, young man? But it's something right in our culture that that makes our homes a temporary financial, our greatest temporary financial investment. And um, what if you look at the real estate market or what is valued uh, in in terms of fine, you know, of currency, 
not talking about the value of health because that's immeasurable. Uh, if you look at a Sotheby's page, it'll say how many square feet, how many acreage cost per square foot. And that cost per square foot uh, um, in real estate speak, in um, bank loan speak, in uh, investment speak, that is the value of the home, the greatest value of the home. Um, so unfortunately for many, like me, and like you, Eric, it sounds like I don't know your story, Alicia, but um, it took getting sick to jump outside of that paradigm and um, look at it. Um, we we have the materials available to build much better here and more solid homes, but it costs a little more. Um, and that's kind of the scene. Education, people don't know. People don't know that their homes could make them sick, and they don't know what it might feel like to live in a home that, instead of making them sick, actually is helpful to their house, most to their health. Most of what's called healthy building, at best, is neutral. It's taking conventional building and reducing the number of VOCs. And now with uh, building science, we have much more insight into why buildings get moldy. That doesn't help you if you own something that's more than five or 10 years old, though. Well, I found that a, a lot of people, once they realize that they feel better out camping or out of their house, a lot of them achieve sort of an unconscious, an almost unconscious understanding that maybe they ought to spend more time outside or elsewhere. And many people can achieve a shift in their house just the moment they become subliminally aware. And uh, they practice what I call unconscious avoidance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember doing that myself. Also, um, I remember Dr. Elliot saying, I'm hungry for air. I'm hungry for air. Build lots of cross ventilation into my house. And that's that same bringing nature in. How can we bring nature in? And I always tell my clients that the cheapest square footage you can build and the healthiest is outdoor spaces that extend your ability to live outside. So doing a screen in porch for one person who's housebound was, a, you know, a wonderful space for them. That's fascinating about the air hunger. I proposed to researchers that they should put up cameras at the entrance to sick buildings because you can see the air hunger as people walk in a building. You can see the difference between when they're outside and breathing normally to their demeanor and how they suddenly change the way they move and act the moment they come into a sick building. Mm -hmm. And Eric, if, I don't know if you've had the pleasure ever of living in a building, well, that's built according to the building biology principles. But once you've lived in a place like that, you're spoiled. And every building built conventionally seems like a sick building. It just might not um, cause overt uh, acute health symptoms, but we can do it. There's so much room for improvement and building better for someone who is already healthy is, it's just a no brainer. When you get into building and designing for someone who's highly sensitive, it's, um, it's much more complex. And what I tell my students is that if you're generally healthy, you don't go to a hospital to get even better. But if you're having a heart attack, you don't go to a health spa. So I feel that the same is true with housing for people. Well, after I um, undertook my journey of living outside and seeking out fresh air as much as possible and avoiding sick buildings, 
I had suffered from altitude sickness my whole life. Well, I immediately took to climbing mountains and I went up to the top of Mount Whitney, 14,500 feet, and was stunned that I have no altitude sickness whatsoever, have no problems functioning at that altitude. And I'm looking at all these incredibly athletic, healthy looking people just struggling up there. They get up to the summit and they're laying down and they're just dying. And I can't help but wonder, I'll bet you're in a building that's not so good. Yeah. Or what did you do to, you know, because this happened when you were young that you had altitude sickness. So what did you come into the planet with? What did you, uh, what was your initial environment like? And then um, what did you do right to get to that conditioning now? Because it seems like you've gone beyond a neutral environment to create a healthier you. Well, my journey is sort of a lifelong one. I've been struggling with this for as long as I could remember, but I moved into an old moldy hotel when I was eight, and that made me consciously aware of what was bugging me. Mm. And as long as I could act in accordance with my perceptions, I would be like a normal kid. But when I was forced back in by circumstances into a building where I didn't feel good, I would completely lose ground again. So it's been an up and down thing my whole life. Yeah. Well, it's hard when you, most people have very little control over their environment. And that's, that's sad, but true. And children have none. I can remember as a child being in the backseat of the car. My mother had just, you know, that was in the days of beehive hairdos. My mother had just had her whole thing sprayed and my eyes were just watering and watering because I was so allergic to whatever was in that lacquer that they put on her head. And it was terrible stuff back then too. But um yeah, whereas, you know, someone else, another kid wouldn't feel anything. So Interesting. So where did you first hear about mold? Well, I'm good friends with John Banta, so um, that's the main topic of discussion with John. But, um, you know, back 20 years ago, people were not calling specifically about mold sensitivity like they are now. This has bloomed literally and figuratively. Um the amount of people who are struggling with severe mold sensitivity now is different than we've ever seen. And we've been taking calls for more than 25 years. So that's one thing I constantly bring out how quickly this paradigm has come upon us. Mm -hmm. I uh, probably happen to be one of John Banta's very first customers. Uh, Okay. Because when he was working with uh, Jim Holland at uh, Restoration Consultants, he had just been appointed sort of chief of mold investigation. Czar mold, yeah, mold czar. And um, yeah, uh, up to that point, he was just sort of looking at sick building syndrome as whatever's in it. But he became a mold specialist at that point. And that's exactly in 1997 when I had hit the wall with my doctors and said, this is ridiculous. You've been ignoring mold. So I'm going to hire a mold specialist. And I was given the phone number for restoration consultants, called him up and had John Banta come up and test my house. And we found mold. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, my trust was so low in experts at that point that rather than rely on him to just tell me what was going on, I led him to all the different mold colonies that I could find in my house. Some were green, some were white, some were yellow. (laughs) Doesn't Um, sound good. There was... Efflorescence down on the concrete. I was stirring up that. 
we uh, went to the lumber mold up in the attic, you know, the black mold that just grows on lumber. And I, I, yeah. I'm stirring that up with my fingers. And John goes, well, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And I'm going, this, this isn't the stuff. It's not what bothers me. This is just common mold. I'll tell you when we get to the stuff. And we finally cut into the sheetrock where the bathroom was. And behind the shower, we found it. I just, I hit the floor. Literally, I couldn't stand up. I was standing 10 feet behind him. And I just laid out by whatever it was. And I go, that's it. That's it. That's the stuff. What is it? And of course, it was stacky boppers. So this told me a couple of things, a number of things in one fell swoop that um, there you, was, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I never doubted myself at all. Good for you. Good for you. So many people do because because they've been told they're crazy because other people aren't feeling what they're feeling. Huh. I must be incredibly arrogant or something. Good for you. No matter how they how much they tried to tell me you're, you're making this up. I'm going, no, I'm not. <laughs> But uh, by that one experience with John Vanta, I found out that there was a specific mold. It wasn't just any mold. And when I looked into the history and evidence of this one particular mold, found out that it does possess the immunosuppressive and neuroinflammatory characteristics that are entirely consistent with what I was describing. Mm -hmm. So that became my journey was to convey this to researchers who were looking at viruses who were aware of other chemicals, but had no interest in mold. Were you able to correct the home? Yes. And, and the people that um, bought it from me, they say they, they love it. I completely ripped out the, the bathroom. I mean, I didn't just remediate it to the studs. I cut out the studs, the floor, the subfloor, everything. Whatever had the, a trace of anything on it and for a couple feet around it, all went away. And that was kind of a neat experiment because it wasn't the whole house. It was just around the bathroom. And I piled that stuff outside at a distance away from the house. And I knew what it was because John Banta found it for me. And it wasn't all the other different molds. This was the bad stuff. And then I started taunting doctors. I go, you've got to experience this. You've got to feel this for yourself. And I finally got one. Well, I don't believe it. You know, show me. Okay. <laughs> and he came and he parked his car exactly on the spot where the dumpster had been. The dumpster was gone, mm -hmm. but the place where the dumpster had been was where he parked. And he turned bright red and started screaming. And he put his car in gear and goes peeling out of there. He rolled down his window just enough. You son of a bitch, you tried to kill me. And I'm that's going, cool. yeah, yeah, that's the stuff. That's the bad mold I told you. Yeah. Um, well, you, you're also unusual that you, because so many people who are sensitive to mold react to a variety of molds and mycotoxins. So um, are ah. you unusual and you're lucky in one way. Well, you're lucky. lucky in a lot of ways, but are you familiar with the principles of Dr. Theron Randolph? The M I've, oh gosh, I read those books years ago. So tell me, because I'm. Well, he was sort of the multiple chemical sensitivity pioneer. Mm -hmm. He really put it on the public record. He wrote all kinds of articles, books. He really fought hard for this. He didn't know about toxic mold, but he knew a lot about what MCS does. And one of his primary thesis was spreading. 
that once you're triggered by a primary, you become reactive to more and more and more things. The mm-hmm. longer you're reactive, the more you react to. And I got it in my head that stachybotrys, this toxic mold, was my primary irritant. And it, even though I had become reactive to other molds and other chemicals, in fact, my doctors told me at that time, you've turned into a universal reactor. Mm-hmm. You are reactive to formaldehyde, to latex, to natural gas, everything. Life is pretty much impossible. I said, well, I've heard this theory that if you can avoid your primary irritant, the secondaries will go away. And I'm going to give that a shot. And the doctor said, no, no, it won't. it's too late. It won't work. You've already been turned into this horrible walking disease called multiple chemical sensitivity. So as far as we know, there's no way out. And I go, well, your therapies aren't working and I've got nothing left to try. So I'm going for it. And that's when I did the desert experiment. I went out and camped in the desert, became reactive to my car, to my camper, to objects that I brought out of my house. And because I was familiar with the issue of priming and secondary reactions and masking and unmasking, I I was able to recognize it and go, I'm detoxing. This is a good thing. And by following the principles of avoiding the specific sensation that I had so that I relate to stachybotrys, all my chemical sensitivities completely disappeared. <laughs> so now the question is, can other people do this too? Well, I can really relate to what you're saying in terms of chemicals, because my trigger, if I can pick one chemical, is formaldehyde. Because I was living in a structure that was full of formaldehyde and there was no regulation at that point. And I became sensitive to many other things. I started off with allergies. And many people, when I asked them their whole, whole history, they had a few um, a few strikes before they ever went over the edge. Um, and, you know, they can remember, like people tell me, they remember running after the um, those trucks that were spraying for mosquitoes in the deep south and breathing it all in. And they felt fine until they got in a moldy house or they got in a brand new formaldehyde filled, filled you know, so something, uh, the, the puncture in the barrel or whatever analogy you want to use. But it's still that I always want to know what was your first trigger? Because sometimes you have to make difficult decisions. If your first trigger was a, a gas exposure, and say, and but you're now um, sensitive to electromagnetics due to a gas stove or an electric stove. Um, so weighing where it all originated uh, can inform many of the decisions. <laughs> Excuse me. I hope you can cut that out. Um, an EMR specialist, um, you know, we're always working with other consultants, electromagnetic specialists, and his specs said, um, you must have a gas stove because you don't want to be exposed to the electricity in an electric stove. And I said, that's not going to work here. This person, you know, is sensitive to chemicals and gas and, um, you know, electromagnetics is secondary. They probably need a clean space to sleep, but uh, don't give them a gas stove. It's going to be a very bad mistake. I, so- I try not to be too confrontational about it, but uh, there's certain concepts that I'm really wild to explore. And if you're familiar with the uh, research on formaldehyde, then you've undoubtedly read Dr. Jack Dwayne Thrasher's work. At one point, I was pretty foggy when I read most of these in the beginning. 
<laughs> Dr. Thrasher was the guy that implicated formaldehyde in the Hurricane Katrina trailers. Oh, great. Yeah. And that was his big thing. He was an advisor for the Chemical Injury Information Network, Cynthia Wilson and Cindy Durin. Mm -hmm. And he had everybody going hot and heavy on formaldehyde. And so I went round and round with Dr. Thrasher because he didn't think too much of mold at the time. And I'm going, is it possible that mold, especially the stachybotrys, could have been upstream of the formaldehyde and people just don't know it? And he didn't believe me for quite a quite a while until he had an experience where he actually witnessed this. And from that point on, he became totally immersed in toxic mold and became quite the mold researcher. Unfortunately, he passed away before these matters could be settled. It's not either or. As someone who lived in a brand new structure that made me sick, that was not moldy yet. It, no, um, there's no question that, uh, you know, something that's a trailer is eventually, if not sooner or later, going to become a moldy structure too. But um, it's not either or. It's, you know, but one of the things that um, the, there's a class we teach for the Building Biology Institute, and we make all of the electromagnetic people training for electromagnetic specialty take it. And the first day I say, you know, this might not be your thing, what we talk about in this class, but I don't want to ever, ever hear a of a building biologist who specializes in electromagnetics walking into a moldy building and fixing their circuitry. You know, you have to be, it's a holistic science. Uh, getting well is a holistic science. And um, in an ideal world, you're not exposed to any of it to get well. You have an environment where you can get well. So... I, I feel like there's a perception that um, people think that, oh, I'm in a brand new home. This is going to be completely safe for me. I'm going to be okay, you know, going from their home that injured them, whether whether it was mold or whatever was in that home. And we're starting to see that these brand new builds are not a sanctuary um, for people who have these type of sensitivities. Yeah, they can be good enough, certainly. Especially, you know, they're paying attention to some things. They're paying attention more to what creates mold in a building and how to avoid doing that. This, you know, as the science is getting better, they can select zero VOC finishes. And for most people, that's a step up. For someone who's already injured, though, it's not enough. Even if it's um, a nice health spa, it's not going to help you if you're having a heart attack. You're going to die there. So... That's, you know, and there's a lot, you know, frankly, certifications can be misleading too. People think if a home has X certification, that's got to be healthy. But, uh, you know, I've had so many heartbreaking calls over there from people who've gone from home to home to home. And they, they're, they're calling as a last resort if they have any money left to build something. So, um, Eric, you're incredibly um, fortunate. For two reasons, one that you were able to fix the home that made you sick well enough to get better. And secondly, that it sounds like you did that all yourself. And I would never advise anyone to do their own mode remediation. That's crazy because. <laughs> well, thanks to John Banta, I was wearing a moon, moon suit, respirator, did the complete isolation, air extraction, all of it. Great. Yeah, you had good company there. You had good advisor. Yeah. yeah. 
Great. John Bant is awesome. And we're so happy to have you on. We know that you work alongside with him. And I just wanted to ask you maybe as a last question before we go for the day, we don't want to take too much more of your time. What are some key pieces of information in your books, prescriptions for a healthy house, your Econest book that would be helpful for our audience? Okay. Well, the Econest books are, if you're healthy and robust and want to build yourself that spa, they explain how to apply the principles of building biology to natural building, which is, you know, it's the, I guess it's the best in my books. But if you are dealing with illness, I just want to show your your audience. This was the first book, the first edition of Prescriptions for a Healthy Health. It has a bigger print and it's, it's not very thick. And this is 27 years later, having written this book four times, this is, let's see, can you, that's how much more we know now. And um, everything that John and I could possibly tell you about building or renovating, we put down here because, um, you know, it's kind of our, it's our, I don't want to call it my swan song because I'm song because I might get roped into working a few more years here, but we're getting old. You know, I'll be, I'll be 70 this, uh, this July. So um, we wanted, we just really wanted to do that. And, and as anyone knows who's written a book, it is uh, an act of love, not profiteering for sure, because you pour your heart into it. But um, so that it's just a, a really good resource. And then if you can afford to hire us, by all means, well, you want to have to read it all and absorb it all. But if you're kind of penniless living in a tent and want to know what to do next or you know, it's, it's out there. And so I really, I highly recommend our own book. What can I say? (laughs) Awesome. Well, we hope to have you back on uh, for a show or just do an educational session with our audience, whatever you'd like to do, because you're just so knowledgeable and we really appreciate your experience and, and all the efforts that you have poured into your books, into your work. Well, thank you. And I'd be happy to do something interactive with your audience if we, we can, because because you're my people. <laughs> Great. Yeah, Maybe we exactly. can talk John Banton uh, coming on, too. Yeah, I bet, I'll bet we could do that. That cool. would be super cool. I always feel starstruck when we meet with John Banta. He's such a cool <laughs> guy. <laughs> yes, he is. He is. So, so, Paula, if any of our audience members wanted to consult with you or work directly with you, where can they find you? econestarchitecture.com. So that's E-C-O-N-E-S-T-A-R-C-H-I-T-E-C-T-U-R-E or however you spell architecture.com. And uh, you can drop me an email. I'm happy to hear from you. It's paula at econest.com. Fantastic. Thank you again for your time, Paula. We look forward to working with you in the future. You're so welcome. Thank you to both of you for what you're doing to inform the public. It's so important. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you guys next time. We want to thank you for listening. Just sending a friendly reminder that what we say is not intended as medical advice, but information to expand your thinking surrounding common situations and issues within the mold community. If you like what we do, please support us by making a donation in the link in our show notes. We also provide one-on-one consultations, products to help with symptom management that you can find in our shop, and a private membership group. 
filled with a supportive community of peers working together to heal from toxic mold. As a friendly reminder, Exposing Mold is a 501c3 nonprofit and every donation is tax deductible. Thank you so much for your support and we look forward to providing you with the most honest information out there on mold and mold issues. Please visit ExposingMold.org for more information. 